0: The no not make show
1: Flash moments for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread, racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted body. pop live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue, talking has left his best. The saga continues, continues. The no-miki show. Hello and welcome to the No Mickey Show. It is Tuesday. I am No
2: Niki Kanst. And I am amazed yet again at the capacity of Republicans, neoliberals and corporate media to twist what, is, what it means to be a working person in this country as if it needs twisting. How do we not know what a working person is? Uh, today's example is their phony narrative that enhanced unemployment insurance, enhanced unemployment insurance is creating a labor shortage. Ah, oh my God. Low-wage workers were the victims of this pandemic, and now we are going to blame the victims because they are cautious about coming back to work or because they can't come back to work because they have no one to look after their kids or because they don't trust their bosses to keep them and their workplace safe from COVID? Even by the usual callous standards of American employers and their pals, this is beyond heartless. It is blindness that makes it hard to address the real issues, which of course is their purpose. This is the new version of that old trope that government safety nets coddle people and destroy their narrative, which is why our safety nets in America are so much less adequate than in almost any other developed country. Mitch McConnell actually said as if it were a fact that Kentuckians and Americans were staying home from work because it was, quote, more lucrative. Lucrative. I can't stop saying that word, lucrative. Mitch McConnell really said that, lucrative. Let's break it down. Unemployment benefits, including the enhanced benefit from the federal government, come to the equivalent about $15 an hour for a 40 hour a week job. In other words, they're about in the place where the minimum wage would have been, if uh, you know, if it were set, if Mitch McConnell's Senate had not forced Joe Biden to pull the minimum wage increase out of the stimulus bill, and also <clears throat> Joe Manchin <clears throat> and 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 Kirsten Cinema. All right, so let's show this tweet from former Representative Katie Hill. Okay, Katie Hill says a month ago we can't raise the minimum wage or businesses can't fun- function. Today, <laughs> businesses. There we go. This is how it works. Today, businesses of I can't function because people won't work for shit wages. Senator McConnell calling $15 an hour lucrative is just cruel. Now, it is true that in some parts of the country where the minimum wage is below $15 an hour, there there are some workers who can take home more from unemployment benefits than from their low wage job. And, and they aren't actually allowed to turn down that job. Huh. And there is very little evidence that this is the reason employers are having trouble finding workers. But if it is a cause, there is a simple and obvious fix. A market fix, I might add. Raise the wages. Raise the legal minimum wage. Create a livable base wage for all Americans. This is a consumer-based economy. Guess what? They'll come back to work. The fact that wages are not going up reveals the lie that is about lucrative unemployment benefits. There are so many valid and easy to grasp reasons why low-wage workers are not rushing back. Fear is a big one, as the Biden administration said. Fear that the pandemic isn't over, that workplaces are not safe, that bosses can't be counted on to protect workers from their unsafe doings. Then there is childcare, and this is huge. If schools are not back in person and there are are no inexpensive childcare facilities or free, dare I add, childcare facilities, parents have no choice but to stay home. And one more thing, for one very brief moment, America actually put enough money back into the pockets of low-wage workers to help them get by. But of course, that moment isn't going to last. It was brief, it was a moment, not long enough. So Mitch McConnell and the employers can, you know, just relax. The enhanced unemployment insurance runs out in September anyways. Personally, I would like to keep going forever. But maybe it would be easier for us all to agree that between now and September, we're going to fix the things that are really keeping workers from going to work. Low wages, a lack of childcare, unsafe working conditions, including the fear of pandemic disease. Then employers can staff up. And workers can make a livable wage simple as that you know take care of the humans that live in this country that provide the labor that you rely on automate that all right we have a wonderful show today we have Akela Lacey lacy and joshua khan russell to talk about what is going on in the Mideast east right now hard to ignore it but also last week uh, and ongoing, there is a a major uh, scuffle, let's just say, in Colombia, the, the country of Colombia, and Andres Bernal is on to discuss that and maybe a little bit about the New York City mayor's race. We will be right back after this break with Andres Bernal. to the Nomi Key Show, straight out of Queens. Andres Bernal is a lecturer of urban studies at CUNY Queens College. He's a research fellow with the Global Institute of Sustainable Prosperity and a senior policy advisor, currently with the Diane Morales campaign for New York City mayor. Uh, quite a time <laughs> to be in New York City politics. Uh, we'll get to I, I want to touch on that a little bit at the end, but uh, Andres, welcome to the show. So great to have you. Uh, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I'm I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Uh, quite a day to talk about escalations globally. Um, almost too much to wrap our heads around. But I don't want to uh, forget that there is 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 a crisis in Colombia right now, and uh, you of course are very familiar with it. So let's like let's start from, not from the beginning, but let's like start from. Uh, the never you never want to start at the beginning because it's like a seven-hour show it's a documentary <laughs> yeah. I'm doing that right now in Puerto Rico I'm like who, like what's going on in Puerto Rico I'm like I oh don't God I'm like I I don't know I have thousands of hours of footage and I'm trying to put it in an hour and a half trust me it's not easy 92 you know
0: there's
2: <laughs> that happens <laughs> so let's get started I, let's start with the 90s how's that what what got us to this 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 situation um, in which a, a Black Hawk helicopter was uh, firing down at people and and murdering them um, blatantly overtly in two thousand twenty one when we like thought we like got over those tactics I, I guess not everybody's gotten that memo
0: Yeah no it's it's really important to kind of see how modern politics in Colombia has certain origins through the nineties and then into the early two thousands and in a lot of ways it mirrors Uh, the evolution of American politics as well. So, you know, in the 90s, we kind of see this escalation of the war on drugs, Plan Colombia, which invests billions of dollars into fighting the war on drugs, escalating the war on drugs, you know, using these spraying techniques on many crops and ecosystems in Colombia that do a lot of damage to uh, environmental issues. And, um, you know, the, the kind of militarization of the country increases even more. And what ends up happening is uh, the the country was feeling pretty desperate after some failed attempts to arrive at peace agreements, um, and a long I mean there's such a long history of uh, conflict over the land and land distribution in Colombia that hasn't been settled. But what what happens is that in early in the early 2000 in 2002 precisely, um, right after 9/11, you see the war on terror escalating, and so in Colombia this uh, this guy by the name of Alvaro Uribe gets elected into the presidency. And he had been a Senator for a while and he had helped pass certain legislations that were trying to privatize In a lot of ways, effectively privatized healthcare in Colombia, social security, many of these things after the American models of kind of doing the way we do a lot of things here. And after the way that Republicans in particular do things here. Um, And he won that presidency very much on the narrative of the war on terror and how you needed law and order Um, very much echoing Bush administration talking points. We were about to go into the war in Iraq. And so he's kind of, he's able to like organize this fervor behind him that, you know, people really believe that finally Colombia was going to reach peace because basically he said we were going to go out and kill everybody that was, you know, with the FARC or sympathizing with the FARC or against the state. Um, Or, you know, we were going to, they were going to fight the FARC and they were going to defeat them.
2: So just for folks, who is the FARC?
0: Yeah, the FARC is the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. They're, you know, they're no longer uh, an official group, but they were kind of like a Stalinist group that was fighting this armed revolution, um, very Cold War Orthodox Marxist style. Uh, They never really had popular support from the country. And when they started to grow for a while, they were the biggest guerrilla force in the world. Um, And, you know, they got involved in, a lot of the drug trade as well, and in kidnapping. And when they started to do the kidnappings, that's when they lost a lot of public support as well, right? So, when,
2: when you when you explain that, um, sorry to, to to interrupt for a second, but okay, so they got involved in in a little bit of. I know this is is it's much more complicated, but they got a, a, involved in the drug trade as well and the kidnappings. But wasn't like the U.S. government also supporting the drug trade? So how does yeah. that kind of inter- well, interact?
0: I mean, I think the situation is that. The the, the system around this conflict has bad players on all sides, has terrible players on all sides. And and I think what's important to note is it's the the people, the rural people, the farm workers of Colombia, that are suffering the most, that are suffering in between this really, you know, incredibly violent conflict. Um, And so you have the FARC doing some, some pretty terrible things, but these paramilitary groups start to form, and they escalate the violence to levels that are like at gen- genocidal type of levels, right? They become known to go into villages. And if they find anybody that may have sympathized or maybe had progressive values, or even were just labor organizers or environmental organizers, right? They commit these massacres. So that that's really kind of what's, what's happening there.
2: When you say massacres, what years are we talking about? And like, I hate to use numbers, but- We've done a lot of, of, of massacre story stories on the show in the global South and, and in Indonesia. And like, what what are we talking about here? And what years? Well,
0: yeah, so this is happening all through... The, the, the thing is, I mean, it's hard to pin down years because this is going on since like the 60s, the 40s, the 60s. Um, you know, my, my dad and I often kind of have this... You know, this, this line that, that Colombia's kind of been in a war ever since we won our independence. Um, and it's been a nonstop battle between liberals and conservatives over control of the land, control of the country. But through the 90s, this paramilitary problem becomes pretty serious. Um, and I mean, to, to get to a number that I think is really important, Uribe, Alvaro Uribe, while he's president, you know, Bush gives him the, the Medal of Freedom the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Bush Jr. Bush Jr., yeah. And um, this is like in 2009. And all of a sudden, slowly, because of progressives in the Senate and other members of Colombia, people start to hear about these scandals that are happening. And one of these scandals in, in Colombia, we call it the falsos positivos or false positives, was that under Uribe's watch, the military was being pressured to, um, to get kills no matter what right? They had to get numbers. They had to get quotas of kills of FARC members. So when they, what they would end up doing is go into villages, find poor people, find people with disabilities, right? That's also very known. Dress them up as FARC members, murder them, and then present them as, as victories and, and as kills. And, and there's there a number like 3,000 uh, of these killings. And, and the numbers are higher because some of these numbers, these are like official numbers, but there's a lot of killings that are never counted as official as well. So that's this incredibly brutal thing um, that, that, that goes on over there, and it happens over Uribe's watch. People in his party start getting convicted and accused of paramilitary deals and associations. So um, what people start finding out in the human rights community is that Uribe is integrating paramilitarism into the Colombian state. Um, and there's all these cult, uh, corruption scandals that happen, people getting bought out. Interestingly enough, in 1991, the FBI marks Uribe as one of the most important narco traffickers in Colombia and, and associated with Pablo Escobar. Um, and, and so, but like- as, know,
2: as, a, as a leader, let's just reinforce, this is somebody.
0: <laughs> yeah, as a figure. And, and again, a couple, like last week, Uribe was invited to speak at NYU. Right, like he's done, he, he does the tours all the time of Harvard and Yale and NYU and, and Princeton. <clears throat> and he's brought in to speak and people always protest and stuff like that. But I think the international community has has kind of dropped the ball on, on what happens in Colombia and not really cared. And, and it's kind of exciting now to see people finally start to pay attention to what's been going on. So, so this scandal is, is, is quite you know, a serious thing. Um, he gets, uh, he gets in trouble for obstruction of justice um, later on. He was actually under house arrest until recently. <laughs> so it's this huge thing. He, he uh, tries to change the constitution to run a third term and a Supreme Court justice overturns that. Um, he later tries to like get rid of that Supreme Court. So it's this, just this mess that starts going on.
2: This is like classic, like, like, like textbook classic. You know, dictator esque behavior, and yet NYU <laughs> and Princeton, you think they would have learned from like Assad when they profiled him in Vogue?
1: They <laughs> think, right.
2: You know, I mean, I that's that's what's so frustrating about this. Like, the writing—it's not that the writing is on the wall; it's in your face. It,
0: it's in your face if you want to hear if you're if you want to look for it. And what what I think what's important to note is that this represents a kind of authoritarianism and a kind of state violence that's also neoliberal and very pro-business so a lot of the west is like fine with it um if we can get our and i mean this is where like there's some complicity because there are there have been many scandals of uh everybody from chiquita banana to coca-cola to other companies who are they set up shop in colombia and when people want to organize to get better labor deals or want to say, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be mining on this mountain because, like, you're going to destroy it or you're going to, like, screw up our river, they will hire mercenaries or paramilitaries.
2: So when you say mercenaries, do you mean Colombians? Do you, do you mean that there's, yeah. like, like like special forces, like, privatized, you know, Blackwater-esque kind of people? Or is it's this... In Colombia. Yes. In Colombia, okay.
0: Paramilitaries and other kinds of, like, you know, Forces of that sort. You know, there's a lot of controversy with uh, institutions like the former School of the Americas here in the United States that train some of these people. Um, so and, and again, like even the Democrats, um, it shouldn't be a surprise, I suppose, but a lot of the, the mainstream Democrats kind of are mostly okay with it. Sometimes they're like, hey, you've gone too far, like, you know, watch out like, but but really, there's never been any serious uh, accountability. Um, from the international community to what's what's been happening with with all of this so n- needless to say all of these scandals are, are going on and then um when he when he can't run for his third term he kind of chooses his defense minister santos to run on his party santos wins and then santos betrays him and goes in a more moderate direction and because santos comes from why a, no. because, uh, yeah i i think it's it, santos comes from a kind of like a liberal oligarchy kind of family. And a lot, you know, I think he envisioned that if the country kept going in that direction, it was going to implode. It's just not sustainable.
2: Was he younger of a younger generation? Was there what
0: he wasn't he wasn't younger, but uh, you know, he I think he was being, you know, politically expedient and he saw an opportunity to broker a peace deal with the farm. Mm. And that's what he went for it. He went for it, Um, And uh, in 2016, first they did a referendum on the peace deals. And Uribe and his whole machinery flips out and they launched this propaganda campaign against the peace agreements. And you would hear everything from kind of right-wing evangelical churches and, and that kind of like religious fundamentalism saying that brokering peace with the FARC and brokering peace with guerrilla groups was the, the, the gen, gender politics and the gay agenda. So you hear that happening, right, the trans agenda. So it's like you have the kind of the beginning of this paranoid right-wing talking point starts to, uh, starts to echo Trumpism in our country at this point. Uh, and the referendum actually fails by 1%. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, uh, again, I think like w- w- the role of propaganda, media, rhetoric, narratives, the way that that kind of like constructs political possibilities for people plays a huge role in this. Um, so the, re- the referendum lost by 1%, um, but Santos keeps going and he brokers the peace deal uh, that same year. Um, and so the next elections that come up in uh, in 2018, the, the right, the Colombian right, Uribe chooses his protege in Duque, who's now the president, and they kind of like Organize around. We're going to destroy these peace deals. We're going to like, you know, hold people accountable, hold the terrorists accountable.
2: Just to make this clear, he betrays Santos. He decides to go against him.
0: Right. So Uribe kind of starts a new party, and he's like, Santos betrayed me. How he destroyed the country? Destroyed? He betrayed the nation. How dare he do that? Um, And that's his whole narrative. So they start a new party. To kind of win back power. Um, so, you know, Uriva is kind of the central character in Colombian politics, representing the right wing that I would argue is kind of like the legacy of Pinochet, um, if you really think about it. And a lot of people, upper middle class people, um, Colombians, wealthier Colombians in the United States, they get to enjoy the privileges of the violence that was being faced by people in the countryside. And 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 uh, social leaders and dissidents and this sort of thing. So you know, if if you're a wealthier person, you go to Colombia. Yeah, you can you can rent out a farm, huge acres of land. You can have a great time. You can you know, it's all fun and games, right? And, and I've kind of lived some of this in some of the privileged spaces I've been in as well. But you know, it's it's really easy to kind of just turn the blind eye to all the human rights crises that are that are happening. And it's just it's totally unacceptable. Um, so that's kind of what 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 been going on until now and so yeah
2: can i can i sorry just to intervene philip so let's 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 put this geopolitical i mean i hate to be so so basic about this but let's just put this in context for our, our american audience or larger u.s audience um know, yeah, most americans associate Colombia with with the drug trade with the cartels with narcos if you want to like play that game um there's Kind of a school of thought that the uh, drug flow, the 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 um, what's the right way? I'm trying to get the word for it. Uh, the, the 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 supply chain, right, was cut off, and that essentially affected because of the the drug laws, specifically the targeting of distribution in New York City. There's a very complicated like like theory that it affected the drug cartels in Colombia. Do you do you see it that way? Do people feel like when Rudy Giuliani targeted every major gang in New York, uh, that that was really a part of? I mean, because they they were part. I mean, that's how the drug industry works. But I say this not to get into like the weeds of the drug industry, but really to kind of understand that was the power center. And then when when power breaks down, and Escobar and, and others, you know, they're it's weaker. Um, Vacuums are created, and political instability is created. So, has like Colombia dealt with the instability that has ensued since the the drug trade has weakened in Colombia?
0: Well, Does that make I mean, sense? Yeah, I think it's it's trying to, but. You know, part of this paramilitarization of the state is one thing that's filling that vacuum. The rise of the Mexican cartels is, and, and the entry of the Mexican cartels into Colombia. I, I think right now you're seeing that happen, like they're taking over Colombia uh, in a lot of ways. What do you mean by that? Well, like, you know, uh, El Chapo and the cartel of Sinaloa and all, they, they're they in various parts of Colombia making deals and controlling those distribution centers right now. And And, you know, but but I think what's what's important beyond all of this is that a lot of farmers and peasants in Colombia don't have anything any other alternative option to produce things to make a living than to participate in making uh, coca and 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 doing that sort of thing.
2: Okay, so this is this is why I asked this question. So yeah. if in terms of the farmland um, in Colombia, how much of the farmland is being used for coca and whatever else uh, versus? You know, for, I'm not even talking about like small farms. I'm talking about to get the banana or whatever things. Like, what is the distribution in terms of farmland?
0: I mean, it, it, it's hard to know. I don't have those those uh, that on top of my yeah. head. But but you know, right now our major exports are cocaine and carbon and, and fossil fuels. So I mean, like that's the most. That's the majority of, of what we're doing. That that kind of connects us to how this crisis happened right now which is that first, um, Duque Uribe's protege wins the presidency. And we start seeing people uh, talk about the murders of social and environmental leaders. So he was elected in in 2018 um, and 2019, 2020 happened. And every year it's like, you know, 300, 400, 500, you know, up to a thousand social leaders are being murdered um, because they're protesting Mining are you Columbia. kidding?
2: Yeah, a and, thousand and a year.
0: About yeah, close close to a thousand. It was like seven hundred uh, a year, something like that. Um, and and so, and and actually, we also don't know what the real numbers are. That's again, I keep emphasizing that because it's hard to tell like official numbers versus uh, people being disappeared and, and you don't know about this. And and again, like Americans can go to Colombia and have a great time, but this is all happening to the most vulnerable people there. Um, And nobody talks about it. A lot of indigenous people, nobody talks about it. Um, And that's kind of really the the tragedy here. So Duque starts talking about bringing fracking to Colombia, more mining. And so in 2009, he issues this tax reform to give huge tax cuts, very trickle down economic style to the, the, the mining companies, the coal companies, major Colombian and American multinational corporations. Uh, and these massive tax cuts, right, they tell the people, well, this is how our economy is going to grow, and this is how we're going to be able to compete in the global uh, you know, marketplace and, and whatever. So then COVID hits. So COVID hits, we've had two years of people trying to get the international community's attention over international human rights violations, people being murdered, people being killed, people are protesting in New York, where I live, uh, trying to protest for the, the UN, all of these things, right? Trying to bring attention. Anytime anybody protests, the Colombian state is like, oh, this is just Maduro engineering this whole thing, and this is just the legacy of Fidel Castro, right? You know, they they're got that propaganda thing going. Um, so this is happening. COVID hits, and uh, a, a, about a month ago, the finance minister goes out and he says, well, we have about a month left of money left. The government is gonna run out of money <laughs> in a month. Surprise!
3: Surprise!
0: <laughs> Surprise! We're out. We're out. I'm sorry. We got no more money. <laughs> and um, I mean, this is also considering the fact that that one of the the big problems in Colombia is corruption at, from from political leaders who just take public funds and they steal it. I mean, they just take it and they you know, nepotism and all this sort of thing is going on. Um, but yeah, these tax cuts happen and then they use that as an excuse. And we know the story here in the United States, they say that we, we, we tax cuts created a deficit and now um, we got no more money. So, you know, I, that's this is one of the areas of research that I specialize in macroeconomics and money politics. And I'm like, wow, that's really, what an interesting turn of events. So uh, the Colombian government says, we're gonna run out of money in a month. We have to institute a bunch of new sales tax on basic utilities uh basic foods that hit the working class and the middle class at large and the people just lose it because one they hadn't received very much of any pandemic relief and and we know just in our country how ludicrous and difficult it was to deal with that so imagine in 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 a country in the global south Going through all of these issues, people work their asses off, right? And they barely, like, living paycheck to paycheck in a country in the global south, it just takes this incredible resilience, and people do it. People put their head down and they do it, and so they don't get much pandemic relief. They're working their ass off. They're stay. They don't know whether to stay home or go out. They're afraid of the public health uh, uh, crisis. You know, people are. Colombia, I think, is the third country with the third Latin American country with the most debts, something like that. Um, so people are, are, are dying at, at very high rates. And, um, and then the government's like, oh, by the way, we ran out of money. Now we're going to tax you all, specifically the working class, so we can raise the money so we can function as a state. And, um, you know, they, they like uh, interviewed this finance minister and they're like, do you even know how much a dozen of eggs costs? and he he gives a number that's like completely off just like a ridiculous number
2: This is like basic i mean in new york this we'll talk about this later but this is like the epitome of the question that the reporter asks of the people in an economic race this is this george bush what's the cost of a milk a milk carton yeah so what does yeah. he say about the cost of eggs
3: well i mean it, it, it,
0: in in, in pesos like right like he he's like oh you know it's like something like 2 3 bucks and and people are paying like you know $10 or something for, for, for it and, and, and people are furious. So this kicks off the, we had seen protests and kind of national shutdowns, general strikes happening here and there over the last few years, but this kicks off this round and people are more, more pissed off than they've ever been. Um, I think more and more people are starting to realize the, the grave mistake that it has been giving these people power uh, people are realizing the incompetence that these people have uh, at, at the head of power. And that now that they don't have their terrorist boogeyman, they've got nothing, which is one reason why Uribismo wants the FARC to stay in power, to stay armed, because they want a perpetual, infinite war to keep on going. And um, and 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 it, they're not, you know, they're, they demobilized. Um so, so, so,
2: so what happened on the ground last week when, when, when folks, I mean, uh, they proposed this tax on workers and, and then how did everybody respond? And then how did the government respond?
0: Well, they started to take the streets and protest. And, you know, uh, in, in Latin America, a lot of these protests are, are, are both, you know, it breaks your heart, but it's beautiful to see because of the energy, the spirit. It's very festive. People protest down there, you know, in a very communal festive way. Um, and, and it's quite a, a sight to see. So so that was going on. And the government responded with just uh, a, a lot of aggression. And over a period of time, they started to knock off the internet. And so like in the city of Cali, they took out the internet. Uh, they began to censor Instagram and Facebook posts uh, that had uh, videos of police brutality, of, of, of military uh, brutality and whatnot, started disappearing people. Um, there's been... Uh, there, there's been a lot of people disappeared, there's been deaths, there's been-
2: Can, people... can I ask you a detail about that? When, yeah. when, when you say, and, and we understand the historical context of disappearing people, but what types of people are disappearing? Like, I, we're talking about people who show up at protests? What, what, what yeah. is-
0: Right, so like, let's, you know, as an analogy, if you're, if you're out here in the United States and you're at a Black Lives Matter protest, imagine, well, they, they started to do it here. I mean, I know they did it in Portland, um, at least once it was on the news where they showed Trump was like, go find these people and they put someone in a, in a van. I remember watching that. Um, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. So we don't know if people are being held like in custody without any kind of knowledge about it or things like that. This is quite common. I mean, when my dad grew up in the 80s in Columbia in college, he was part of student protests and, you know, people would get disappeared uh, if like just the cops would get you and they'd put you in a car and you wouldn't hear from them again, or maybe you'd be released. Maybe you wouldn't, you don't know. Uh, and so the people kind of escalated the protesting. And of course you're hearing now things from the government about how they just want it's, it's verbatim us talking points. they they just want to loot. They don't want to work. Um, they just want to destroy property and this is just Venezuela trying to take over. Like, you know, all of a sudden Maduro is this genius who is like orchestrating <laughs> everything around the world. It's not like, he's, it's not like they got their own pro- like very serious problems in Venezuela, but he's also orchestrating Colombia apparently.
2: Now. Fidel Castro's dead guys, let's just be real.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when Fidel, Fidel Castro
2: dies, the mastermind gets infused into Maduro. And then when he's done, it's gonna be AOC masterminding. That,
0: that's, <laughs> that's the, the next voice. one. Listen, I get attacked on Twitter sometimes from people that are like, you know, AOCs, Castro Chavista. In Colombia, anybody that's not with the right wing is called a Castro Chavista. And uh, so they'll, they'll call even like a neoliberal or a moderate if they, if they criticize them. They'll be like, oh, you're a Castro Chavista. Everybody's a Castro Chavista. In, that's in, the
2: case, in- just roll with it. That's my whole theory. Go for it. <laughs> Go all the way. <laughs>
0: yeah, so, um, so, oh, so that's been at the center of the tension. Uh, what's going on. They're taking out the internet. There's an incredible amount of of police brutality happening happening right now. And the people are still still in that struggle. I mean, I think what's important and exciting to see is that the progressive opposition, um, last elections got second place, received the most number of votes a leftist has ever received in the history of Colombia. And he's running again. And he's way ahead in the polls this time. So his name is Gustavo Petro. Um, and he's running as a progressive. He's running as a progressive. He's running as uh, a progressive that is about healing the country. He, he is a former, he was part of the M-19 uh, kind of guerrilla movement. And they weren't like the FARC or anything like that. It, it was much different. Um, and he renounced his arms later on in life. He, he was really young when that happened. And then he kind of took a different path um, but he's running on like structural reforms, peace, you know, healing in the country, trying to figure out how to move ahead, um, while at the same time, making sure that power is, is distributed much differently in the country. And most importantly, he's running on a sustainable environmental uh, project, which is one of the first ones we've seen from a Latin American that's like as overt. It
2: has to, it overlaps. Um, when are the elections? Is there sense?
0: Yeah, June next year.
2: June next year. And then uh, in terms of last week, uh, has the government responded? Has anybody responded to the violent response from the government in terms of very peaceful protests?
0: I mean, you know, I think the Biden administration has started to, like, threaten them with pulling, with, like, pulling their military, our military support.
2: Do we, from, was, from- that, that was a Black Hawk uh, uh, helicopter, but was it, from us recently, or was this like another era? Uh, do we have any sense?
0: I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about, about that. Um, couldn't tell you about that. But I mean, you know, uh, Ayanna Presley, AOC, and a number of other progressives here in the US have denounced this. And mm-hmm. I've, I, at least in my lifetime, I've never seen something like this coming from US pro, uh, elected officials. Uh, in, in fact, John Kerry is still out there talking about how great Plan Colombia was. He he literally said he, he's quoted as saying that he wants to approach Biden's <gasps> environmental policy in the same way they did Plan Colombia. They're, <laughs> like he's on he's on record saying that. So it's just a complete disconnect from from like no idea. Oh they have no idea. They have no idea. And and, and you know, it's just it, it's No
2: they do. Of- That's the problem. They do they just don't know a strategy that works The best they don't they they're, they're they're caught they're like stuck in uh as mitt romney said 1980s politics are calling or no yeah. no built but no that was that was obama calling mitt romney and 1980s politics are calling but in the reverse order right. oh my god right. andres i i want to talk about like there's a lot more we have to talk about but can you come back on? Let's talk about New York City politics. Unfortunately, we have a panel, but I would love to talk about, uh, sure. it's just a crazy day in terms of news, but we'd love to talk Absolutely. about the mayor's race.
0: Absolutely. La- last thing just very yes, quickly please, please, that please. I'd say is is please uh, follow this movement. Uh, it's called Colombia Humana, a Humanist Colombia. That's kind of the movement around Gustavo Petro. He's organizing what he's calling a historic New Deal, very much around the the narratives that, that we've had here about the Green New Deal. Um, mm-hmm. I brought him to, I, I was part of a Team that brought him to the uh, Progressive uh, Congressional uh, Strategy Summit here in the U.S. with uh, a lot of our progressive elected officials and whatnot. So he's launching this, he's bringing in liberals, he's bringing in the left, he's bringing in progressives to do something to change Colombia's future. And, you know, there's worry that he can get assassinated uh, or, or something like that. So the more that people in the international community are paying attention to this, the better it is for everybody.
2: Andres for now. Thank you. This was beautiful. Thank you so much for reaching out. Let's have you back on. We'll talk. We'll talk more about Columbia and anywhere else. And of course, um, New York City, because we've got a mayor's race right. heating up.
0: <laughs> it's getting good.
2: I don't know if it's, You and I might disagree. I don't think it's getting good. I think it's getting. <laughs>
0: People's cards are getting put on the table finally. It's getting.
2: It's getting. <laughs> it's I went, I, I was in the majority report earlier. I lost it. I lost it oh, for yeah. all the progressives yeah. who supported. And oh, yeah. I mean, like, come on. We all knew who Andrew Yang was. Not that he's, I don't think he's the front runner. I mean, you and I probably agree with us. Okay, another conversation. We'll talk about, <laughs> we have a panel. We've talked about Palestine. This yeah. is more important. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. righty. Thanks, Andres. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right, we will be right back with our fabulous panel. Akila Lacey's here, and so is Joshua Kahn-Russell. We are going to talk about what's happening with Israel and Palestine. Oh, man. Tough day, man. Very tough day. We'll be right back. Hello. Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. Thank you to everybody. Uh, today is, is, a, is a party day. Uh, Akila Lacey. Thank you so much for joining us. She's a politics reporter at The Intercept. We love her. And Joshua Kahn-Russell, we also love, is executive director at The Wildfire Project. Uh, both friends of the show. Uh, this is a show, I want to talk, talk uh, let's just start off with two topics today. The big topic is what's happening with Israel and Palestine. Almost too much to comprehend. But I also want to talk about uh, the, the, we've had him on the show. Stephen uh, Don, Donzinger has, been targeted by chevron right um i don't know if you've been following this story but he has been uh dealing with corporate persecution he's been under ha- house arrest for over i think almost two years at this point if not more than two years uh he was the attorney representing uh, thousands of indigenous workers and people in ecuador and he won a case with others um against chevron and ecuador their supreme court their courts uh demanded that ecuador that uh chevron pay in damages. And somehow, because Chevron is very crafty, uh, they were able to work our legal system and basically come up with um, insane charges. So he had a hearing yesterday. So I just, I just want to start with that one, if we can, uh, Dorsey, just start with Stephen, and then we'll go to Israel-Palestine, because I do want to react to uh, his statement, because this is he's, he's creating a global movement. Let's play this real quick.
3: This is much bigger than me. This is an effort by corporate America, particularly the fossil fuel industry, to impose a new playbook on how our court system works so they can attack and silence their critics, so they can continue their planet-destroying pollution practices um, that are really threatening the existence of everybody. So I'm just a symbol that they want to go after so they can use it as a weapon of intimidation to try to stop this work from happening, to try to discourage and demoralize lawyers and campaigners and human rights advocates, environmental justice, campaigners from even doing this work. It's extremely important people stand by me. Tomorrow we have a a court date at 10 a.m. at the federal court in Manhattan. We're going to go in there and fight hard for the truth Beforehand at eight thirty, there's a rally just outside the court. Please get there. Roger Waters is going to be speaking. Marianne Williamson, Susan Sarandon, activists from Sunrise, from Extinction Rebellion, and other organizations. It's going to and plus some of my lawyers, and it's going to be a really important point for us to convey okay. to the court and convey to Chevron that they cannot get away with this. So,
2: so that that actually happened yesterday. The rally. Um, you know, he, he frames this from a perspective of he's a symbol for the legal system. And I think, you know, many of us have been highlighting how the Trump legal system would change the world that we live in. And I th- I mean, it, this didn't happen yesterday. It happened before. And who knows if it would happen under a neoliberal administration, but uh, it's undeniable that it's happening. And uh, for those of us who feel that the legal system should be just, there's a, an egregious corporate alignment um, in this case in terms of, of, of the, of the uh, justice who has been overseeing this and who he's appointed, who she's appointed to um, uh, investigate the case, who they're consultants for Chevron. So let's just like make it very clear. Uh, Joshua, you work in the environmental space. I'm, I'm sure you're probably covering this, you know, looking at this closely. What are your thoughts on what's happening with Stephen? Cause this is, you know.
4: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> You, you mentioned uh, Nomi that you know, that we're going to be both talking about the Middle East and this case. and that the, the thing they both have in common is that they're about indigenous sovereignty. And um, it's so following this case, um, I think demands of people understanding, the role that native people in Ecuador have been playing in standing up to not just the state, but to multinational oil companies. And in this case, Chevron in particular, which for nearly half a century has been poisoning um, indigenous communities. You know, so it's just to, to take a step back in the bigger picture, um, you know, they've been poisoning those communities in the rainforest they protect in Ecuador, they've destroyed their water. There's been epidemics, uh, epidemics of um, liver, stomach and throat cancer the ransacking of the most biodiverse place on earth, you know, the lungs of the earth, creating conditions for childhood leukemia to spread. And um, so that, you know, and and I appreciate, one of the many things I appreciate about Donziger's work after spending many decades working on this case, which this this response is because they won the case right the people of Ecuador won a case against Chevron um and so there's a nine and a half billion dollar settlements that Chevron is like we're not going to pay that that was back in 2011 and they've been fighting it tooth and nail ever since and so Chevron's strategy is both, you know, they don't want to pay the settlement, but more than that, they don't want to set the precedence of people using the legal system to defend indigenous rights, and they can't let this stand. So it's, it, it isn't about Danziger as individually, and um, it, it is about um, solidarity and them trying to break mechanisms through which we can have international solidarity. And this is such an intense week for that, as, as there's so much repression around the world, I think a lot of U.S. progressives are, are beginning to understand why we need to have an internationalist orientation to, to our work, and also why, you know, if you're an environmentalist or you care about climate change, uh, you need to have indigenous sovereignty kind of front and center. Um, and so if, and just, you know, to, to put a quick next step for folks who, who do want to plug in, because I know that the video clip that you played was, you know, for folks. I think that was in New York, right? Where were the um
2: Yeah, he's under house arrest, he's out of his home.
4: Yeah. So if you're not in New York, um, one place you can plug in is going to AmazonWatch.org. Um, Amazon Watch has been um one of the key US players in supporting um this fight for self-determination from Ecuadorian Native people for for decades now. And so they're they're a great group to check out if you want to get more information.
2: What's so crazy about this is the Ecuadorian courts sided with the people. And yet, uh, here we are, <laughs> U.S. courts, corporate courts. Akela, I mean, you're on the political beat. How, I don't even know how, how I answer ask this question, but how much of a mess is our court system at this point? <laughs> Across the boards. <laughs> well,
1: I think this is a good example of, um, you know, I guess a, a disproof of what, you know, is sort of repeated a lot in legal circles, which is that like it, particularly in, in issues like this, which is that if you go through the appropriate channels, justice will be served eventually, which in this case might be true, but you see, uh, you know, immediately how quickly um, forces mobilize to uh, to upset you know outcomes that they aren't happy with um you know my colleagues have been doing a lot of work covering corporate responses to indigenous protests over pipelines and um my colleague actually had a a new piece out just the other day about um how law enforcement and energy companies have been leading lobbying efforts against um or to you know to criminalized different forms of protest um, in the wake of this past summer, and then the the attacks on the Capitol. And so, I think um, it's just important to keep all of these things in perspective and and um, name the the players uh, who are uh, taking steps to try to you know either entrench their power or um, you know legalize um, you know cracking down on on free speech um, in these cases.
2: So crazy to me is, is, is this is in terms of market wise, it's a, it's a, it's a dying industry. Um, and so many, I mean, I say dying uh, when is a bigger question, but, but there is oil and gas is they're, they're shifting, you know, they're, they're shifting their strategies. And I just, I asked Stephen of this I was like, why, why are they doing this to you? It just seems so egregious. They lost, they lost by, they can pay that money easily, and yet they keep going and they keep pushing. And so, not so much of like why they're doing it, but is Biden going to do something, knowing very well where the markets are going, how how oil and gas is shifting their strategies? Either one of you can can jump in. Like I, I just I understand sometimes he stays on the sidelines about a lot of issues uh, in this environment, but. This is a really risky one. Don't I mean? This is this is. I've spent the last week interviewing political prisoners, so maybe I'm just feeling this a little bit in a, in a deeper way. But like, not a great. You know, he doesn't want to have this on his record with the rising left. No, as a rising left organizing around climate in particular. Whoever wants to jump in.
1: I, I don't. I don't want to like speculate about what whether they're going to jump in or not. I think um, you know it's. I could say that based on his track record, like you know, we could we can um, you know assume that he probably won't. But like, I, I think it's taking a gamble on um, whether or not they think that this is something that his supporters would would come back and you know criticize him over. Which at this point, I mean, I, I don't think that there's like necessarily. Well, I mean, maybe maybe it's fair to say that there's like a relative lack of attention um, to this particular issue among like, you know, the leftist groups that are like the most, the loudest agitators against Biden, um, particularly not that the, and, and I think it's ironic because as Joshua pointed out, there is a strong parallel between this, this situation and what we're going to talk about with respect to Palestine and Israel, but um, I, I don't think that um, the movements are making those connections at the same, like uh, at the same like rate of amplification that you know organizers are would hope necessarily. So I think that probably means that we're not going to hear much from the White House on this anytime soon. But yeah, I, I'm open to <laughs> Joshua's thoughts. I hope they might be more optimistic.
4: <laughs> yeah, they're not. <laughs> but 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 it is why you know I and it, the to the their strategy is to try to get this on the desk of Merrick Garland and to to say that you know like all all of the current infrastructure is in the pocket of the oil companies It needs to be taken taken up, up up the chain and so that's that's what they're trying to do
2: okay let's shift gears um Benjamin Netanyahu uh, made a statement about the airstrikes uh that were launched uh Israel has I think it's over 24 Palestinians have now been killed um, targeting an apartment complex, among other places, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, issued a statement. Let's let's play that clip. We are at the
0: height of a campaign, since yesterday the Israeli Defense Forces executed hundreds of attacks on Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. We targeted militant commanders, we hit many of their quality targets. At the conclusion of situational assessment, it was decided that both the might of the attacks and the frequency of the attacks will be increased. Hamas will be getting blows it didn't expect.
2: So (laughs) Benjamin Netanyahu, conservative going through a lot of uh, issues on his own in terms of corruption. Uh, whether or not he survives is another question, but he's like doubling down. He's tripling down, he's quadrupling down. He's all in right now. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's I think it's odd because he's doing this at a time when he doesn't have the Trump administration to back him up. Um, I, th- I personally believe this is a little bit of a risk for him politically. I'm, I will get to the existential issues on the ground, but I think it's a political risk for him because he doesn't have the Trump administration to back him up. Um, maybe Biden does nothing, maybe Biden rides us out, but I don't actually think the Biden administration uh dynamics geopolitically, not because of Israel, because Israel's obviously in bed with the Democratic Party, but or parts of the Democratic Party. But I think because Biden owes his support from from co- communities that don't necessarily align with the with the Netanyahu administration. Does that make sense geopolitically? So, Mike, I don't understand geopolitically because you're thinking Nanya, what is he doing? Like his one benefactor is the United States. Why, why, why are you doing this at this moment? Either one of you can jump in. Nope, nothing, I can pause.
4: I mean, there's so much, I mean, it's, it's a play to try to shore up as coalition, right? So, you, you know, you escalate the displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, you know, in, in, in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, which is where all the attention is focused right now. Um, repressing protests in order to provoke a response, right? And when that provocation wasn't enough, they attacked worshippers at al Mosque uh, to get the response they needed, which was Hamas responding with rockets, which injured six people. Then Israel, you know, reta- retaliated from from what they provoked, killing twenty five Palestinians, including nine children, and it's. it it, it is just the typical playbook. It's that old play of you, you try to create a a fervor and shore up a coalition and national unity around the sense of a threat. Um, I agree that it's a risk, Nomi, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but um, it doesn't seem that different than the pattern that start, you know, like it's, this is like Ariel Sharon's playbook, you know.
2: I mean, it's a risk, but like, uh, and it's a pattern, but at this moment, I mean, he's, he doesn't have to build a coalition locally, no? Like, I, I, I guess I'm not understanding. It's, it's, it's. maybe I'm, I, I feel like he needs to be playing the geopolitical game, not the local game of, of politics. I hate to break it down that way um, because it's such a dehumanizing way of looking at things, but unfortunately that's how they're looking at things. And the reality is, as we know over and over and over is there's a slaughter of people who are completely indefensible and don't have, have the power structure. We know, okay, love what are your
1: thoughts? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think part of this is that Netanyahu can bet on what we've seen, all, like, aside from whatever Biden and, and the White House does, he can bet on a couple of things that will be true, which we've already seen, which is that media will uncritically parrot Israel's narrative about this, um, no matter where, you know, no matter how much the um, the progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party has shifted, like, media is, is very, you know, <laughs> you know pretty behind on this one still i think um you know we've seen like I- i've seen just like countless examples of it over just the past couple of days and and then you c- you see some candidates in the democratic party who are still you know who are using that that leeway to to continue sort of like um These, you know, like Carolyn Maloney and Andrew Yang, like these statements just, you know, you know, not say not criticizing one side or the other, but very clearly um, doing that for a purpose. And so I think, like, you know, he's not necessarily concerned about whether or not Biden's going to back him because I think I mean, I don't even know, really what the United States would do at this point, like we're not at the point where we're talking, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, brought up conditional uh, adding conditions to to aid to Israel at Gay Street. but that was like the most sort of um attention that any israel po- like any u s. Israel policy has gotten you know since Biden took office, and that's not anywhere near the conversation that you need to be having to address this sort of thing. So I think he he still has a lot of leeway, um and he knows that. and quite frankly i don't I don't really think that he cares much about the human impact of these these actions,
2: which is the problem you know, with sending yeah. your leaders to Harvard is that they understand u uh, s. politics a little bit more than. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on that note, <laughs> I'm so happy you brought that up, Akela, because the New York Times uh, naturally uh, edited a headline to erase the story of Palestinian Palestinian families being evicted from their homes. Let's show that. Uh front of the show, Mike, Michael Utrecht says, uh, this is this is a great account, if you guys don't follow it, called Editing the Great Lady. Uh, the police enter the compound, oh, okay, you can read it right of us, right? Um, this is a classic example of the media and, and the New York Times is clearly the largest, but this is happening over and over. Simultaneously, uh, you've had a, I want to I want to profile my friend, uh, Congressman Richie Torres, who is a rising star in the Democratic Party. And I nearly lost my cool today on the majority report about this because I think it's super important. As you mentioned, Nikhela, there are leaders in the Democratic Party who will, even if Biden does not, there are other leaders who will back up this narrative because they've been on APAC trips, where like their or you know their hummus was paid for. They got to like go uh, meet with you know they got to they, they got to go to the whaling wall. They got to like uh, you know stay in a fancy little hotel, and and next thing you know, their policies have changed because of a trip, a trip, a trip, and some donations. So um, I, I actually I want to say this clearly because I don't think people understand how many supposedly progressives side with APAC. When I say progressives, I mean progressives who have supported, Richie Torres endorsed Bernie Sanders. Let's be incredibly clear. Richie Torres endorsed Bernie Sanders. There are others in New York who've endorsed Bernie Sanders who have supported this messaging or are supporting mayoral candidates who support this messaging. So this is a which side are you on kind of moment, I think. And not only has he done this, he's also on the side of statehood for Puerto Rico. So there's like a, a little similar situation in terms of colonialism there. Um, but this is deeply problematic. You have uh, APAC, which has done a lot of um, incubation of, of the next generation of politicians. Uh, Cory Booker, of course, was part of that community. Kamala Harris, there are many. But I'm really curious politically how people like Richie Torres, who's younger than I am by three or four years, so maybe he's like 34 or so. Um, younger politicians getting elected have been, rec- you know, sometimes recruited at the state level, at the city council level, at the, uh, you know, congressional level to go and support these narratives. It's kind of been their pipeline from the start. But how do they do that in conjunction with this left. Like how do how does Richie Torres in ten years justify this position? How does he stay in office? How does how do any of these lawmakers, Ruben Gallego, I mean, there's a laundry list of these lawmakers who are echoing these talking points? How do they do it in this environment? And how does that sustain the power structure in Israel when we know very well the Carol Maloney's and the Nancy Pelosi's are just older and it does it doesn't work anymore? Okay, Let's go to you first. Well, I think a uh, you know a lot of whether
1: people like Richie Torres or you know Gallego on these certain points survive depends on how well people on the left and groups that are active on on these issues can unite the narratives that justice in Palestine is inextricably tied to justice in the United States and get progressives united behind that um, behind that messaging to the po- to a point where you know politicians can't just say, oh, well, that's a foreign policy issue, we're not talking about that right now. Um, and that takes a lot, that takes, you know, like, you know, solidarity in media, that takes solidarity in, in these organizations. And I think we're we're definitely moving towards that point. But I think it's still, obviously, a long way off.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the it, it'll depend on how well we can get organized, because, Nomi, what you just described also is how well the other side is organized. And, you know, I mean, like so many other young Jews, my heart hurt so much, especially seeing like the dancing and cheering of Jerusalem Day Israelis celebrating violence against Palestinians. And, you know, my blood was just boiling at what was being justified in our name. And for, for my entire lifetime, advocates of the political project of Israeli colonialism have conflated a Jewish identity with a ethnic nationalism which is given cover to an ethnic cleansing effort, right? Which, by the way, here in the US is primarily funded and propped up by far-right evangelical Christians, which is why their side has so much infrastructure and is so well-organized, because that's where so much of the money is coming from. And so what Akilah points to is how our side needs to get organized. And so, you know, if you're an American Jew, you can play a role in shifting this justification um and and so one way to do that that i want to offer folks is if you go to ifnotnowmovement.org uh there's an open call tomorrow um a conference call to plug into pressure campaigns that are here in the US and you can organize with other young jews who are who are transforming not just transforming this narrative but um getting a lot clearer uh in the kinds of pressure campaigns that we have because you know it's it's Unclear where you know. I, I don't know if y'all saw Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, get t- caught totally flat-footed and giving no clear answer. You know, now is the time to push the the Biden administration and the best if if you're if you are young progressive, and, and period. But I'm I'm as a Jewish person making appeal to Jews because I think we have a different kind of voice in the discourse, right? Because um, our our identity's been weaponized. <laughs> um, that uh, now is a great time to plug in to get educated about what's going on, and the best way to do that is through organizing. Um, not, you know, it's it's great to make make statements on social media, all of that, but um, really, really plug into a group. And if not now, is is a great way um, you can plug in, no matter you know, no matter where you live in the country, uh, etc. And it's and it, they're, what they're does that
2: refer to? What does if not now refer to?
4: Um, oh my gosh! I actually, it's. I mean, it is. Ugh, you're catching me off guard. Go to the
2: website. I'm not going to do
4: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. yeah. I mean, it not, refers if, to if, a, a, if a, now, a, a
2: phrase in it. Yeah,
4: exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, And if you can't go to If Not Now or if you can simultaneously drag these em- mother effers who are uh, under the age of 45 who think it's okay to go to APAC conferences and, and echo these points. And I'm sorry, I'm disgusted. I've known some of these people for many, many years. And the fact that they can run around and say that they're, uh pro lgbtq and pro this and pro that and then simultaneously be pro-colonialism uh pro uh, like pro-apac it's not even like apac is a bright wing at this point has I mean, always been but it's i'm i'm all about like drag them they feel it i know i've seen them react in their comments they feel it and they need to feel it because the generation is shifting. It's not; these aren't people who are dying out in five years are going to be retiring and cashing out and getting into their seventh home. These are people who who want to be. Their entire careers are contingent on the resources that are being given to them. But the power structures are shifting, and and and, and it's up to the organizing that you're talking about, Joshua and Nikayla, that are going to determine their futures. Uh, and if they don't feel it, then primary of their asses in my opinion Just throwing that out there i love you guys deep day kayla lacy joshua con russell joshua it's been a while i miss you i
4: know we miss we missed a week i'm glad to be been a back. solid be months
2: since months, I think,
4: two
2: weeks, <laughs> I don't know. It's been a while. Um, love you all. I'm gonna do some shout-outs. Uh Ian Kinzel says, Oh, this is funny. Your proposal in the majority report that we cast three men is unironically preferable to anything I've heard from New York City mayoral candidates. So you have my vote. I'm not running for mayor, uh, but I do feel that if anybody's ever had a dog before, I don't know if i ever said this on air, I say it a lot. If anybody's have a dog, dog. I had a boy dog, I have a boy dog. And um, when I first got him as a puppy, for a while he had a little bit of an issue. He had two surgeries. Uh, he would just run around and pee on things and rip things to shred and um, hump things. I don't know if I can say that on YouTube. And he he was just a mess. And then he got fixed. And then when he got fixed, he was the most amazing dog ever. And I'm not I'm not trying to compare men to dogs, but I am comparing Uh, animals. We're all animals, right? So maybe (laughs) men wouldn't be wreaking havoc and uh, trying to one-up each other and throwing bombs on other countries and trying to occupy each other. If that thing alone, I'm not saying women aren't problematic, but I'm just going to say it's not, it would be a little bit less problematic, just a little bit. Uh, I'm running for mayor on that, so... (laughs) There you go. Prairie Fire Kowalski says, who is the yin to the yang of the New York City mayor's race? Uh, I would say Diane Morales is probably the alternative to Andrew Yang, but it's a weird race. Um, Catherine Garcia was just uh, endorsed by the New York Times. She was the head of the sanitation workers. Uh, so she has some like real life experience in terms of management and government. And that was the New York Times. Uh, Argument, But I also think that was sort of like a wink wink nod nod endorsement of Eric Adams, which they didn't want to do because they were like, oh, management is so important. And then they were like, by the way, no one else really has management experience except for Eric Adams and Scott Stringer and Scott Stringer is going down, 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 down. Uh, All right. Yeah. So shout out to everybody in the chats. You guys are doing great work. Uh, Huge thank you to all of our moderators on YouTube and Twitch for building those algorithms and keeping the spaces troll-free. We love you, Harvey K. Hope your uh, trip to New York was great. Talk soon and uh, we'll see you tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube and Twitch. And for those of you who are not already subscribers, please, please, please subscribe, like, share. Join us on Mondays. Check out Arun Chowdhury's new show called you know what it is? It's called the committee program. It's on Mondays from 3 to 6 p.m. But um, <laughs> but we post it all throughout the week. Craven James just sent some love and says, as a man, dogs are smarter. Depends on the dog. Depends on the man. Just leaving it there. All right, guys. We will see you tomorrow. Join us at patreon.com slash Show. Please join us there. That is how we sustain the show. Go over, check us out, and we will see you tomorrow. Stay in solidarity. Take care.